Morning to those of you uh, watching with us online this morning as well. Happy 1st of August. We are concluding this um, whole study in the book of Genesis. It was four series, so let me just recap very quickly. We started in September of last year uh, with a series titled Rise and Fall, first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then in the spring, we first did a second series, Abraham, The Way Forward, in the life of Abraham, and followed immediately after that in a series on the life of Jacob called The Way of Blessing. And we're going to finish this study uh, in the book of Genesis in a series starting this morning in the life of Joseph called The Way Forward, okay, The Way Forward Through This World. Joseph takes up 13 chapters, we won't look at all of them, but from chapter 37 where we'll start today through the end of chapter 50, and that tells me, it should tell you, that it's pretty important takes up that many chapters in the book. Many would say, um, that who write about this, that the story of Joseph, of the stories that precede it, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, is more of a modern story. Now, what do they mean by that? What they mean by modern story is that unlike the other stories that precede it, God does not appear in the story. That is, you know, he doesn't, it's, there's no burning bushes in this story. He doesn't appear, he doesn't speak in a, in a verbal way, to, in, in a demonstrative way. He doesn't act in kind of demonstrative ways that he did with his um, predecessors. Like us, maybe, maybe this is why they call it a modern story, Joseph must respond to a God who uh, doesn't speak from heaven. There's no voice from heaven. There's no, no knock at the front door uh, in the life of Joseph. He has to, God, God has purposed us, here's the big idea, to reach maturity, you and me, okay? God has purposed us to reach maturity within the constraints of a sin-cursed world, where God's presence is not always obvious and his leadership is not so clear-cut. He's present. We'll see that. God is, very, is, is, pre, is as present in the world that you and I live in as he was in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But his presence is not always as obvious. His leadership is not always so clear-cut. That being said, how do we go forward? How do we find our way through. That's the story we're looking at today. Now, the story of Joseph, which many of you know, if you know the story, if, if it was the first, you know, what first thing that comes to your mind is the dream, right? This is where it starts. This is where we meet Joseph, the teenager at 17 years old, Genesis chapter 37. So I'm going to use that as the title of my sermon, which is this big event, the dream, selected verses beginning in verse 2, follow along as I read. Genesis 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? 
and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Verse 12. Then his brothers, or excuse me, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, again, another name for Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. Very well, he said, verse 19. Here comes the, that dreamer, his brothers say. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that, that the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it. See whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured, devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, I didn't read all the verses, but they didn't kill him, his brothers. They kind of you know, mercifully decided just to beat him up, throw him in a cistern, and sell him as a slave. He recognized, that, excuse me, then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days, verse 36. Meanwhile, it's like, you know, episodic television. Meanwhile, you know, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, to one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, this rather modern story, at least relative to the other stories in Genesis, has three timeless questions. That's how I'm going to break this up for you and me today. The first one is this, why is this happening to me? Okay, Why is this happening to me? You should think about Joseph. Imagine yourself in this story in a manner of speaking. A couple things we, we see right off the bat. This is, might be one of these stories where, you know, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Joseph has two major events happen in this passage. Number one, he gets this, this coat, this beautiful ornate robe given by his father. Now, this isn't just a Christmas gift or a birthday gift, a nice gift that you might give to one of your kids, in this case, 12. This is something that means more than that. This means, this is why there's so much animosity from his brothers, that he's the father's chosen one. And you have to know the rest of the story of Genesis, which we've looked at. That might not be a big thing in your family or my family. If my dad or my mom gave me a, you know, a nice bike and didn't give my brother or sister one, that, well, that might not be such a big event. right? But in this case, remember the story of Abraham. Remember the story of Isaac, how Abraham chose Isaac over his older brother Ishmael, and how Isaac chose Jacob over his older brother Esau. This was a pattern. And when this happened, it seemed very capricious, God worked through all the providence of it, but what happened was when those choices were made, they understood that this was conferring the covenant, the, the football, if you want to call that, the, the progress of this family being carried forth from generation to generation. Abraham gives it to Isaac. Isaac gives it to Jacob. Jacob now saying in this moment, I'm giving it to Joseph. He's not the oldest son, which is where the culture would say it should go to Reuben, but it ends up going to Joseph. And in this moment, now you can appreciate, his brothers say, why, oh, why is it not me? But to make matters worse, not only does he get his father's, you could say, capricious choice because some say why did Jacob choose um, Joseph well we know the backstory because his mother he loved her Rachel more than he loved 
his other wife, who where all the other kids came from, or these, these, these um, handmaids, these sort of surrogate wives. So the one he loved the most, the woman who lit his fire, was the mother of Joseph. That's why he chose Joseph, okay? But it wasn't just the choice of his father. There's the dream. Now, when you and I think about dreams, it doesn't, it's not something that translates in our culture. If I told you I had a dream and I'm this great man and I'm going to be the head of this company or I'm going to win the lottery or I'm, I'm going to be in the Super Bowl, whatever I told you in my dream, you know, we'd laugh about it, we'd talk about it, and then we'd change the subject because we don't give a lot of meaning to those kinds of things. But in this culture, a dream meant something very, very important. Think about it. There's not a lot of story here yet. And by the way, there's no Bible yet either. These guys aren't, there's no Bible on their shelves. There's no Old Testament. There's no New Testament. God speaks in demonstrative ways, voices from heaven, the burning bush, and how it spoke to their father, Jacob. Why is Jacob a center player in the book of Genesis? Why, by the way, do these 12 sons in this family, why are they very wealthy relative to everyone else around them? Why do they live on a big estate? Why are they, why are they very important people? Why are they so well off? Well, they know why they're well off. They know the story. Certainly they'd have heard it many, many times because even though their father's brother Esau was the chosen one, he was the, 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 the law of you know, the, older, the, older, the older son, the older born, the law of primogeniture, he was the one that deserved the blessings. His father Jacob, was, or brother Jacob was given to it instead. And because of that choice, these men, these young men, this family is living on a very well-to-do life. They understood the power of the dream, and now they realize it's not coming to me, Reuben. It's not coming to me, Simeon. It's not coming to me, Ishakar. It's coming to Joseph. He's getting it. That's what the animosity is all about in this story. But I want you to think about this. Like his father Jacob, Joseph's dream, Joseph's call, it comes with a lot of hard knocks and tests, right? I mean, maybe one of the ways to think of the sermon is be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you pray for, right? <laughs> Make sure you understand that there's certain things that come along with God's blessing and God's calling. A lot of tests follow. You know some of these. This is a, a summary of where we're headed in these five weeks. Sexual temptation, false accusation, unlawful imprisonment, all kinds of things. I would say at the top of the list, a deep, alienating loneliness characterizes Joseph's life. You know, when Jacob first left and got his dream, you know when Jacob got his dream, Genesis 28, the angels ascending and descending, we know this story, or at least we heard it before I talked about it last um, spring or this past spring. When Jacob gets that, you know, it's a beautiful story, but the context is not so beautiful. He's on the run from his brother, almost like this. It's, it's almost, you know, same song, different verse. It's, it's, it's the, his brother Esau finds out that he got the blessing, you know, kind of hoodwinked his father with his mother's help of his, uh, of his father Isaac. And his brother says, I'm going to kill you. That's the only reason he's leaving the promised land. And even though the promised land represented the locus of blessing, do you know how long Jacob was outside of the promised land? He didn't just, was, he didn't just have to get away for a long weekend or maybe even a month for his brother to cool, to cool down. He left the promised land with nothing but the clothes on his back, Genesis 28, and he was gone for 21 years. He never saw his mother again. In Joseph's case, I'll just tell you what's a little preview, he's 17 years old. He didn't want to leave the promised land either. His brothers sold him, right? It wasn't my choice. And he's off to Egypt. You know when Joseph comes back to the promised land? He's at 17. Never. The last verse in the, in the book of Genesis says this. 
Joseph died at 110 in a coffin in Egypt. He never, ever, ever, ever went back to the promised land. He lived in a country where people spoke a different language, where people had a different culture, where they didn't know the God of Abraham from the man on the moon. That's where he lived the rest of his life. Why, oh, why is this happening to me? And that's and the biggest opposition, of course, isn't just the deep loneliness, isn't just the, all the traps and the troubles that come. The biggest opposition happened, of course, from his family. The reason he's on his way to Egypt is not because of some third party. It's not because of some government action. It's because his own flesh and blood said, we don't like this dream. We don't like you. We're going to take matters into our own hands. The main reason he's going is because his own family, the people he's been called to love and save, that's the dream, turn against him. Ask the question. It should ask you the question, me the question. Why? Oh, why? If God is behind this call, I think that's our perspective. This comes from God. Even if God works through the capriciousness and the self-serving motivations of a Jacob or an Isaac, right, choosing the wrong son, so to speak, God works through that all. It's clearly God's choice. Joseph is the focus of God's blessing. But why, oh why, oh why, God does it come with so much difficulty and so much pain? Why, oh why does it happen? I'm, I'm getting ready. So this is a pastoral prayer request. I'm getting ready to... Uh, get on a plane uh, to go back to Kosovo where I spent a year of my life as a missionary 20 years ago. Now, this purpose of this trip is just three friends, my old ministry partners. We're just going back, kind of a you know, reunion tour. I'm calling it you know, visiting the place of my undoing. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's just an opportunity to go back just for a couple days. But when I think about that experience, which was 20 years ago, to me, in a manner of speaking emotionally and otherwise, it feels, like, it feels more like 40 years ago because of the changes that I experienced in my life um, in that one year. To summarize, I would say in that one year, I lost my sense of self. and I lost the confidence in myself, and I... Rebuilt it. I lost my, 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 my paradigm, you might say, for ministry. I went there with all these great ideas, and I tried them all, and none of them worked. I lost my paradigm of ministry, but I eventually discovered what doing ministry with people was all about. I went there thinking that people needed what I had to give them, right? I was this very proud missionary. That they needed what I had to give them, I left having been given so much by God and so amazed that God allowed me to do some amazing things that I never dreamed or imagined I would do. I grew a lot in that year. But a lot of times in that year, if you were with me, if I had a tape recorder, there were a lot of times, especially in the first six months or so, where I said to myself, after a failed experiment, after a failed ministry initiative, after a sense of deep loneliness, after some dangerous experiences, I said to myself, why is this happening to me. I left my, my, my comfortable life. I put all my uh, you know, uh, uh, cards on the table. I said, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going here to do your work. Why, oh, why is this happening to me? And there were times in that year, not only did I say, why, oh, why is this happening to me, but I said, this whole experience, I was too afraid to admit it at the time, is a complete 
and total waste of time and money. Right? That's what I said to myself. But I would also tell you this, that it changed me in the most important ways, and I could even say now, looking back 20 years later, uh, every important thing, any important thing that I have done in 20 years, including uh, being the pastor of this church, is the result of what God did in my life at that time. Here's the point. What's standing between you and me and the dream God has for your life is not money, it's not opportunity, it's not the one who got away. It's character forged often and only when you're stripped, okay, of the questions that you tell yourself, the, the, the things you say about yourself, that you tell yourself about yourself, whether that's the inflated questions of Joseph, you know, I'm, uh, I'm God's uh, uh, answer to your problems, I'm God's choice, or they're the kinds of questions of I'll never amount to anything, right? It's the, it's the character that is forged often and only when you're stripped of the lies you tell yourself about yourself that keep you from the work that God wants to do in your life. This was just the beginning, the coat of many colors of Joseph stripping. This would go on for another 22 years. Think about this dream. This dream was a sheaf. My sheaf rose above your sheaves. Now, the sons of Jacob were not farmers. They were shepherds. Okay? This dream had nothing to do, made no sense to Joseph, made no sense to them, but it made sense to God. Because 22 years later, Joseph would be the viceroy in Egypt and save the world of famine. See, he didn't know, they didn't know, but God knew. But Joseph needed to go through some hard times in the meantime. Why or why is this happening to me? Some of you, we've all been introduced, quick illustration, to a woman named Sunisa Lee in the last week. Who is Sunisa Lee? Sunisa Lee is the unexpected winner of the all-around women's gymnastics gold medal. She, no one heard of her for the most part two weeks ago. But all of a sudden, she won the gold medal. And all the papers have been doing all these diagnostics. And they say this, when you compete at that high of a level, in any, in any particular uh, set of athletics, you have to find something that distinguishes you. I mean, just one way that distinguishes you above all the others who are at the same level of, 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 of high quality that you are. And the thing that has distinguished her, she's only 18, but for the last seven years of her life, is her work on the uneven bars. And they say she has perfected this thing on the uneven bars over years and years and years where instead of having one or two or three or four sort of momentum swings, have you ever seen people, women do this or in, in gymnastics or men, they, they have to get enough momentum to fling them up. She only does it with one swing. But they said the precision required to actually make this connection is so incredibly small or great. So the, 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 the room for error is so small that it could be very disastrous. Okay, but she hit it and she won the gold medal. But they showed in the paper, embedded in this story, a video uh, of, of a practice round before, sometime before the final event. Watch this quick video. Yeah, 
Now, as an illustration, okay, have you ever felt like that in your life in something you've been working on for a very long time, right? Maybe it's your career again and again and again and again and you fall flat on your face. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's being a parent. Maybe it's some area in your life, my life, because I'm talking about my life, where you felt God has called you to do something. God's given you a dream. God's given you a purpose. And it seems like everywhere you turn, it's one failed, you know, um, experience after another. Why, oh, why, God, is this happening to me? Why is it happening to Joseph? So that one day, 22 years later, when he's the viceroy in Egypt, he'll be ready. That's why. And the same is true for you and me. Why, oh, why, God, is this happening to me? That one day, even if it's less, less glamorous, it's every bit as important what God has called you to be, that when your time comes, you'll be ready, right? Character is forged often and only when we are stripped of the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves, whether those are inflation, I'm better than others, or I'm, I'm good for nothing, I'll never amount to anything, I'm too old, I'm too tired, I'm too worn out, I'm too much of a sinner, God will never choose me. You have to be stripped of those lies, and God will take as long as it takes to get there. Why, oh, why is this happening to me? Second question this passage asks, maybe the heart of the whole Joseph story, what does it mean to trust God? See, what does it mean to trust God when there's no more voices from heaven? What does it mean to trust God when there's no more burning bushes? What does it mean to trust God when he's not showing up at your door? Joseph's grandfather was a guy named Abraham. Abraham's whole life, his dream was having a kid. Remember the story, right? It was promised, promised, and you know he got older and older and older. But finally, Genesis 18, three people show up to his front door of his tent. One of them turns out to be the Lord God Almighty, right, in the form of a man. And the Lord God Almighty says, I know you're tired. I know you've been waiting, but I'm going to put a date stamp on it. One year from now, I'm going to show up back here, and your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child. And that's what happened. Don't you wish God would do that for you? But it doesn't work that way so much anymore, right? God doesn't do that uh, necessarily the way that he used to do that. What's the spiritual secret of Joseph's life? Let me say this first about this family. You can't help but read this story and ask yourself, um, maybe the whole story of Genesis, is this the family through who God is going to save the world? Right? Think about it. Is this the family, not just Joseph and his brothers, oh my goodness, are ready to murder him, sell him off as a slave, lie to their father, right? That's almost the same thing that happened with Jacob. Esau wanted to murder him with the help of his mother. He lied to his father. Is this the family through whom God is going to save the world? Let me say this to you guys, if you don't already know this. There are no heroes in this story. There are no models of faithfulness, yet it's clear, here's the point, how to trust God, by the end of the chapter, that God is working out his purposes despite Joseph's self-importance and immaturity and despite the brother's bad behavior. 
Now the brothers, why do they want to kill Joseph? Because they want to kill the dream. Why do they want to kill the dream? Because they know the dream means he's important and I'm not. But even in this crazy rage and foolish self-serving motivation of trying to kill or sell their brother, guess what happens? They do it, but in that self-serving action, it actually advances the dream. Because Joseph needed to ultimately go to Egypt to save the world in this moment. What's the point? What's the big idea? Listen very carefully. Your life and my life. God works most in the places he seems most hidden. How could God possibly be in this this self-serving um, you know, coup d'etat of these brothers selling their brother. God couldn't be in that. He was, as it turns out. How could God be in um, Jacob's, you know, you know, willy-nilly choosing of Joseph just because he loved his mother more than he loved all the, the, the other mother because she reminded him of, of the woman that he loved? How, that's stupid, selfish, capricious. How could God work through that? He did. Joseph was God's choice. If you're looking for God to connect the dots in your life, if you think that you really know where it is that God's going, you miss the point. How could God possibly use this? Is this the family that God's going to choose the world? Listen, if I was a straight reader of this and I didn't know anybody, I'd say, find yourself another God. Right? This is the family who's going to save the world. These people are crazy. Okay? But that's how God works. God works most in the places he seems most hidden. The spirit, this is the spiritual secret of the life of Joseph. God works most in the places he seems most hidden. Listen, it's the spiritual secret of my life, and it's the spiritual secret of your life if you have eyes to see it the way through. God works most in the places he seems most hidden. The way through a sin-cursed world, listen carefully, what is it then, Rob, if God's not showing up in the burning bush, if I can't follow the manna or the breadcrumb trail from God? What is the way through a sin-cursed world is obedience. It's responding in faith to the things you don't see and you don't always understand like I'm going to Egypt to save my brothers and family who live in the promised land. The way through a sin-cursed world is obedience, responding in faith to things we don't understand. Let me say something very quickly. We'll get more to this in this series about obedience. Jesus used the word obedience all the time. In fact, his great you know, uh, last sermon launching the church God, all authority has been given unto me. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them, wait for it, to obey all things I have commanded until the end comes, to obey. Now, now it's, it's a word that we don't love so much, you know, but when I think of obedience, uh, at least the first thing I think of is, is a parent with small children, you must obey, or maybe a dictator, right? But Jesus is not talking to small children in Matthew 28. He's talking to um, adults, who he's called to do something important. And Jesus is not a dictator. He's an all-loving God who is speaking to people he loves about the near impossible things he's asking them to do for their lives. And the reason obedience is so important, because God's powerful and you're not, because God's smart and you're not, no. Obedience is important, just like it is with, between a parent and a, and a five-year-old, because the amount of things that that five-year-old doesn't know 
about what you want for their life, what you want them to do, what it means to eat and sleep and stay away from the hot stove are beyond your wildest imagination. Obedience is important because there's only one person who knows the future, and that's God for your life and for my life. People say to me all the time, you know, the Bible is old-fashioned, right? The Bible's old-fashioned. The Bible is, is, you know, it's out of date. You've heard that. You know, it's good for this and it's good for that, but the Bible wasn't considering these issues. It wasn't considering those issues. It wasn't considering this lifestyle. Listen, this is what I, I would say to you humbly before you. The person out of date is you and me. That is to say, as C.S. Lewis said this, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. God lives above time and beyond time. Joseph could have said, listen, God doesn't work that way. You know, I'm not going until I get the burning bush. I'm not going until this is the way it's always been done. This is how it worked with Abraham. This is how it worked with Jacob. It's how it's going to work with me. No, it's not. Because God has cards in his hands that you know nothing about. Right? And until you learn that, until I learn that, the way through is the way of obedience. The way through is you got to stop looking for signs. you got to stop looking for manna. you got to stop looking for God to show up on your front door like he did for Abraham uh, if you want him to do something in your life. Look at these verses, popular verses, very quickly. Philippians 2, advice to you and me from the great apostle Paul. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Watch this. Continue to work out your salvation with joy and rejoicing. No. With fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Why were they in fear and trembling if they're in God's will? Because God calls us to grow and reach maturity in a sin, in the, within the constraints of a sin-cursed world where God's presence is not always obvious and his leadership is not always clear-cut. It's a broken world. Listen, it's a world of famine. Okay? And he says, listen, don't try to connect the dots. Don't try to make sense of it. Learn what it means to follow me in the midst of confusing circumstances in a broken world. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Here's the big why. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to fulfill, wait for it, his good purpose. Do you think Joseph had any idea at 17? He knew he was special. Did he know that the sheaf represented famine that was 20 years out in the future? That that represented he was going to have to go through who, all, who, all kinds of numbers of twists and turns and disappointments and false accusations and a deep loneliness and never see his mother again and live the rest of his life in a foreign country? He never dreamed that God would never tell him because he couldn't handle it. Right? It wasn't until the words were coming out of his mouth in Genesis 15 and he says, listen, guys, don't worry, I'm not going to retaliate because now I've come to understand that God sent me here through in the last place I'd ever dreamed going, in a place I've never really liked. They speak a different language. They don't look like me. They don't sound like me. No one here even has ever heard of the God of Abraham in Egypt. I have been living in a foreign country for all of my life, but now I understand why. To save your life and to save the lives of others. That's what the church is about, okay? what the church is all about. Joseph had to learn to trust God even when it seemed, this is it, even when it seemed like his life was going in the wrong direction. Joseph had to trust God 
even when it seemed year after year after year after year after year that his life was going in the wrong direction. This is what it means to find the way through. It's a, it's a grown up, grow up, brothers and sisters. Don't be looking for the knock at the door. Don't be looking at the manna from heaven. Don't be waiting for God to, um, you know, to speak in, uh, to your life, uh, you know, to whisper in your ear. He might do that, but he's more often not to do that. He's teaching us to reach maturity in the constraints of a sin-cursed world where his presence is very, very real, but it's not very obvious. Okay? It's the life of faith. It's the way through. What is, why is this happening to me? What does it mean to trust God? Last point, we'll get ready to share in this communion together. Are you living the dream? And I mean that not in a, in a, in a sentimental, I mean whatever God has called you to do with your life. Okay? Are you living the dream? This larger story, the whole Joseph story, is, now listen very carefully, is about the given problem of famine. Now, we don't know it yet. I mean, I mean, Joseph doesn't. We know it. This whole thing, this big, huge dream and all this trouble is to solve the given problem of famine. Let me say something about the given problem of famine. Nobody's responsible for it. It's not Joseph's fault. It's not Jacob's fault. It's not the, the Egyptians' fault. No one is responsible. It's not the Democrats' fault. It's not the Republicans' fault. Okay, how much time do you waste pointing fingers at people? You're missing the point. There's, it's nobody's problem, but it must be addressed if there's going to be a future. And this is not just about Joseph and his time. It's about the gospel in all time. The dream is a vision of history. Why does it take 13 chapters in the first book of the Bible? It's a vision of, of history that is inverted against all odds. What do I mean by that? It's turned upside down. In other words, if, if a famine's coming in the, you know, in, the, in the New York City or in the great empire of Egypt, and it's coming down in the future, God says, who should we save it? Ramses? King Tut? You know, uh, the Egyptian? No, some Jewish kid that nobody knows who doesn't speak the language, he is going to be my chosen vessel after he goes to jail, after he gets in trouble for, for, for being accused of a crime he didn't commit, after this, after that, after he gets the snot knocked out of him, after he is stripped of the lies he tells himself about himself, about how good he is or how unworthy he is, then he'll be ready to be used of me to save the world. Okay? Are you living the See, what's true of Joseph in his time is true of you in my time. It's this right here. It's the gospel. What is the purpose of this gospel? To humble you, to heal you, right? To reorganize your priorities and to help you know that you are more than the sum of your parts. That's what Joseph learned. And until, you, until this heals you, encourages you, rearranges your priorities and helps you see that you are more the sum of your parts, you will never realize the dream. You'll spend all of your life complaining and pointing fingers when God's trying to do something through you uh, and through me. What is God calling 
you to do? Are you living the dream? Listen, let me ask this question as a church. Are we living the dream? What is the dream? What do you mean, Rob? I mean, are, do we believe we live in a world that is in the middle of a famine, in a manner of speaking, okay? The whole world's under a famine, not just of the coronavirus, but a famine for the truth, a famine for what is real, a famine for the grace of Almighty God, for the message, right? And are we, are we wait, what are we waiting for? What am I waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are we as a church waiting for? Listen, the same God who called Abraham out of nothing, who took a, a, a character like Jacob and turned him into a name, someone called Israel, who took the unloved uh, son by his brothers, Joseph, who was full of himself and had him save the world, is the same God that's alive and well in you and me if we have the eyes to see it, right? Are you living the dream? Am I living the dream?